can be seated. Kids, you can head on back. All right, the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6, chapter 7, mainly chapter 7 this morning, but the end of 6 is where we'll kind of pick up, where Jacob left off last week. Hope you guys had a good week. Hope you had a good 4th of July, Independence Day. I hope that that was, went well, that the fireworks didn't get too crazy, or if they did, that that was money well spent. Uh, so Judges chapter 6, and we're going we're gonna to keep looking right where I said, like I said, where Jacob uh, left off. You'll remember last week we were talking about Gideon, and, and, and Gideon began uh, the, the, the morning in the, the, the text. He, he began hiding in a wine cellar, but by the time he was done, uh, Gideon had, through a series of tests with God and kind of confirming things with God, confirmed that he was ready to go to battle and that God had called him to go to, to battle. So today we get to see how that goes. As I said, I, I hope this week was good for you. Independence Day is a wonderful thing that we get to celebrate the 4th of July, and I'm glad that we as a country uh, still take the time to, to celebrate this country and, it, and its founding and uh, I, th- I think it's great that we are able to do that. Certainly, this country has its problems, uh, but uh, and some of them are significant and rooted in some, some painful history. But in my opinion, uh, here in America, we still have much to celebrate. And in fact, this morning, what I want to do is I want to read a couple of things for us. I want to read uh, a common quote, and I want to read uh, a portion of the Declaration of Independence and uh, it'll start with kind of near the beginning and then go to the end. But hang with me. I promise this is not some like uh, obscure chance for me to, to, to force feed some American history on you and some, uh, some Revolutionary War history, but instead uh, something that will, will actually be very relevant to our story with Gideon this morning. I'll start with a quote from none other than Patrick Henry. If, is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery, forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Any red-blooded American patriot should know that quote, know it well, give me liberty or give me death. It was the rallying cry of, uh, of the cause of uh, the, the 1770s as, as America kind of marched towards independence Uh, which culminated with the Declaration of Independence. I'm going to read some of this. It's going to take just a second, uh, but I think it's worth hearing this morning. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. Skip down toward the end. It says, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World, pretty big title there, for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. And you skip down just a little bit more. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. 
Now, as a red-blooded patriot, that gets me fired up. I'm not going to lie. That gets me fired up. I like to figure out a time on the 4th to try to read through that and think through that. I love the rhetoric. I love the courage that it took for these 56 men to sign what is effectively uh, their death certificate were this whole experiment to fail. I love it. The Declaration of Independence. It doesn't get more American than that. This spring, we had a chance as a family to go to uh, the National Archives and see the Declaration of Independence in Washington. You had the, the Declaration of Independence the Bill of Rights, you had uh, the Constitution all behind this frame glass. This was far more secure than Nicolas Cage would lead you to believe. Uh, and it was incredible. It was on the highlights of the trip. I loved all of it. Um, and I, lo- I alluded to this a few months ago in another sermon, but we-, we take for granted that the causes of the revolution and the founding of this country were God-honoring God-driven causes. Just in those few sections of the declaration that I read, it's full of, of, uh, of references to God and references to, uh, to divine providence and, and, and to the supreme judge of the, of the world. All of this is in there, and we take for granted that, that because it was part of the Revolutionary War, because it's part of our American history and American fabric, that it was all God-fearing and God-honoring. We take for granted the idea that what made this country exist and what makes this country great is that these, these ideals were firmly rooted in biblical principles and ideas. This country exists, many believe, not as an act of political will, but as a God-ordained reality. Now, how true is that? I don't know, honestly. I'm not sure. There's much that could be said, much that could be debated. There's been a lot of ink spilled over that. But what many fail to see is that the political reasoning of the 1700s has so infiltrated our language and the things that we value as Americans, it can be very easy to make the assumption that what was said and done is simply gospel truth, that it is fully biblical. There's, like I said, there's a lot to hash out here, but for our purposes this morning, the question comes back to the 4th of July, Independence Day such a part of who we are as a people, so much a part of who we are as a people that do we, we, we hardly ever ask the question, because it, it never really occurs to us, is independence actually a good thing? So this morning, I want to ask that, that question, and I propose that we let Gideon's story inform our own understanding of how independence and the gospel work together. Now, I'm not fully going to work through all the issues of America's founding and independence and how it all works together, but I think what Gideon goes through, the story Gideon goes through here, will teach us what does this word independence mean, and is it really the supreme value that we as Americans by birthright kind of assume that it is? So we're in Judges, at the end of Judges 6, and God has just confirmed to Gideon that he is indeed the warrior to lead God's army against the Midianites. He's, he's confirmed it through the, the fleece that had dew on it, and then it didn't have dew on it, and back and forth. And, 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 and finally Gideon says, all right, I believe you, God. You're the, you're, you're the one that has, has called me to this battle. It's clear based on all the signs that you have answered. It's clear that I am the guy. And she says, all right, let's do this. I'm ready. This is where we pick up in chapter 7 of the book of Judges. We pick up chapter 7, and now it is time 
to ride. It's time to fight. And now, even though that Israel is, is outnumbered by a, a bitter enemy that has been terrible towards Israel in the Midianites, Gideon has confidence that God will do as he has promised. He is no longer the doubting uh, Gideon from chapter 6 with the fleece. He is now, uh, he's not nervous Gideon. He is now the Gideon of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel. We'll talk about some of those uh, here in the next coming uh, weeks. Uh, and, and the prophets who, though faith, or through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. That's the Gideon that we're getting ready to learn about right here in chapter 7. He's that guy. So let's see how Gideon transfers from nervous, God, I just got to be sure, to warrior, uh, not quite king, though they want him to be, but at, 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 at least kind of the leader of God's army. So Judges chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Well, that's not how you typically start out uh, a conversation with God whenever you're ready to go to war. He says, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 people remained. That is not at all how this is supposed to go. What's supposed to happen is Gideon gets confirmed as the leader of God's army. He turns to them and he says, all right, guys, God's told me that we've got this. Let's go. Let's ride. Screams charge. And down the hill they go ready to fight. This is kind of what we saw with Barak a couple of weeks ago. He just takes off once God uh, kind of confirms things through Deborah and he's ready to fight. But Gideon has to go and do what no commander of any army in the history of ever wants to do, which is lose men before the fight even begins. Think of this as kind of like the opposite of, of Mel Gibson's Braveheart, right? So, you know, Mel Gibson's got the blue face paint and, and his guys are nervous and, and he rides around on the horse and he rallies his guys to say, no, 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 don't leave scared because you, you'll, you'll be worried and, and you'll regret leaving the battlefield on this day. You'll wish you could have stayed to fight for your freedom and for your independence. Don't leave. That's what Mel Gibson says on the horse. What Gideon says is, you're scared? Go on home. It's fine. Go on home. Feel free to leave. Instead of kind of rallying them and kind of stealing them against the, the enemy and stealing their courage and turning them into brave warriors, he says, who's scared, doesn't want to fight? Two-thirds of the guys are like, me? I didn't want to be here in the first place. They told me I had to come. Uh, and, 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 and Gideon says, fine, you don't have to fight. Go on home. You're free to go. And they lay down their arms, and they turn around, and they go home. Don't you wonder what Gideon's face must have looked like whenever he said that? When he says, hey, show, show of hands, who doesn't want to be here? 
Like, I, I have to think that whenever God said, hey, you've got too many guys, let the scared ones go home. Whenever, whenever Gideon asked that question, I, I got to think that Gideon's thinking he's going to get kind of like a, a smattering of hands, right? He's going to get a handful. He's just going to get like a, a couple hundred guys that will raise their hand. But instead, he gets two-thirds of his army that raise their hands. He goes from 32,000 to 10,000 people. He's got to be surprised. He's got to be disappointed. I mean, he trusts God, but come on, God. Like, you're taking away every chance I've got here. I trust you in this, but this seems ridiculous. I got nothing that I can count on. But Gideon doesn't balk. No arguing, no questioning, no are you sure, God, just give me one more sign if this is really what we need to do. He doesn't do any of that. He just sends them home. So where does the story go from here? Verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. To which Gideon's got to be like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, really, we're down to 10,000 people. This other army is ridiculously bigger than us. Don't do this to me, God. He says, take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you shall go with you, and anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone, uh, he says, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will, save you, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So now we've taken this army of 32,000, which was already outnumbered and going to be uh, going uh, kind of about to enter a battle they shouldn't win anyway. Already outnumbered is gone from 32,000 down to 300 men. Now, a lot of preachers like to, to, to kind of make much out of the way that these guys drank and that there's something about the way that they drank, like, like if, they, if they drank like with, the, with their water and they scooped it up, it meant that they were more vigilant and they were looking out for the enemy versus these other guys who just stuck their head underwater like a, like a dog. Those guys weren't really looking, uh, weren't really great warriors because they weren't vigilant. Maybe that's there. Maybe that's a thing. I don't know. The text doesn't say that. Really what the text says is God just needed fewer soldiers and this was a way to decide. And that's really, that's really pretty much it. The whole point in this text is that Gideon's army becomes weaker, not stronger. So I don't know that it's the better warriors that stick around. If anything, it seems in, in, in with the rest of this text that it would be the, the, the lesser warriors that would have stuck around. But either way, God is simply saying that no matter who these men are, all that matters is I am with you. Do you trust me? And Gideon says, all right, fine. We'll send home the rest of these guys. So he sends them, all, sends them all home except for just 300. So here he sits, ready to go to war with a massive army. And all he's got is 300 men. Now we'll see here in just a second that he's scared. 
don't, don't ever convince yourself that, that, that faith equals a lack of fear. Those two are not necessarily the same thing. He is scared, but he's listening. And this is when God does something that I find to be unexpected. He graciously gives Gideon a chance to calm his nerves and to deal with his fear. He comforts him, and he does it by sending, uh, by sending Gideon down into the camp of the enemy which in and of itself would have been a dangerous thing, but it doesn't even really address that. He says, I tell you what, here's what you need to do. Verse 9. It says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise and go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley, barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and, and came to the tent and struck, struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So Gideon, Gideon goes with his servant down. He's nervous. He's scared. But God says, I tell you what, go down and just listen to the conversation of your enemy. Just listen to what's happening. So in my mind, Gideon puts on like a tunic, a robe. He's got like the hood that's up over him. He goes down uh, in, the, in, in, in the night. And when he goes down there, he's kind of hiding in the shadows around the tents. And as he's, as he's hiding, he kind of he comes up on, the, on the, the, the mess hall. And he can kind of hear the conversation that's going on uh, amongst the soldiers that are in there. As they, uh, as they uh, have a drink and they, they're kind of talking, they're like, dude, I had the weirdest dream. And they explain this dream. This guy then interprets the dream, and that's all that Gideon needs to hear. That some of these soldiers are having dreams, or at least one soldier is having a dream that, that, that Gideon would conquer. It tells him that these soldiers are at least a little bit nervous, and it gives Gideon all the confidence that he needs that he will win the upcoming battle. In spite of the fact that whenever he goes down, what he actually sees should have terrified him. People as many as locusts, camels all over the place to move all of these people. It's a massive army. He can't even begin to count how many he is going to be up against. But once he hears this dream, he says, that's enough for me. I'm good. The things that should scare me don't. Because I have had this confirmed and I know This is what God has called me to. He doesn't ask God for a second or a third or fourth sign. He doesn't go from tent to tent saying, I need to hear one more soldier say this. Let me hear a few more soldiers say this. Let me see what's going on here. If I can figure out this here, none of that. He heads back to camp. Now let's see what he does. Verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands and all of them and and all in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And when I come out of the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, 
I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So you see what has happened here. Gideon comes back to camp with full assurance that God is with him. And what does Gideon do at that point? Does he sleep? Does he rest? No, he doesn't do that. Does he go into hours and hours of uninterrupted prayer to hear from God, to know that this is exactly what God wants? No. He worships God, and then he comes back to the 300 men, and he says, I've got a plan. Here's the plan, and here's how we're going to do this. Not... God has a plan that he's revealed to me in a secret dream or in my prayer, but instead he says, I have a plan. You see, Gideon knew that God was going to give the Midianites to his army, but he still had work to do as the commander of the army. God's sovereignty over this situation never negated Gideon's responsibility as a commander. Gideon still had to work. Gideon still had to scheme. Gideon still had to do all of these things. He still had to do the work of the commander of an army. This is how God works in so many ways. I could give you so many examples here. Just a couple. As parents, our children are ultimately, and this is terrifying for all of us, out of our hands. God will work in their lives when and how he sees fit. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to raise our kids in such a way that they see, hear, and know the gospel. God is sovereign in salvation. But it doesn't mean that we don't don't act and we don't do things that we are called to do as parents. We could say the thing uh, uh, about a spouse. If you're dealing with a a, a broken marriage, a, a spouse that doesn't care, or even a spouse that doesn't know Jesus, we cannot change our spouses. You will probably kill yourself and your marriage if you spend your life trying to do that. But we can do the work that we are called to do as a spouse. We can pray, we can live, we can strategize and fulfill our role that God has called us to as a spouse. God is sovereign in salvation, but it doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel. In fact, God has ordained that the way in which salvation is brought to the people is through us sharing the gospel with others. We cannot simply sit back and say, God will take care of that. Instead, what God says is, I will take care of that, and here's how I'm going to do it, through you. Gideon can't just say, well, Israel's going to win. God, you do whatever you need to do. Gideon says, Israel's going to win. Here's how we're going to do it. He comes up with the plan. We could keep going. We could talk about all kinds of different things, but you've heard me say it before. My view on God's sovereignty is that God is completely sovereign, and he does as he pleases. But his sovereignty doesn't take responsibility away from me. In fact, in a lot of occasions, it gives responsibility to me. God is sovereign, so let's get to work. That seems to be the overwhelming kind of thrust of the, the scriptures. He will do as he pleases. And part of what he pleases to do is to use his people in that work. 
There's so many ways. He, he could have brought a, a, a flood. Or he could have brought a, a storm. He could have done anything and just wiped out the Midianites. But instead, he chooses to use Gideon to do the work. And so Gideon schemes. He comes up with a plan, and he pursues. Gideon's motto is just that. I trust God. Here's what we're going to do. So he comes up with this genius plan. He comes with this genius plan about, uh, about kind of surrounding the camp, blowing trumpets, pulling out the, uh, the, the, the torches and, and all that kind of goes with that. Just to add to the clear application for us today, had Gideon not been forced into his weak point, into his, his weakness of only having 300 men, he never would have come up with this plan. The plan that is one that ultimately succeeds, the plan that is the one that ultimately wins the day, the plan that is ultimately the one that glorifies God, he never would have come up with that plan if he still had 32,000 troops. In fact, his plan probably would have been, hey, let's go down in that valley and attack. And that would have been about it. But instead, he had a scheme and he had to come in with all these other, uh, these other ideas when God puts us in a place like this where weakness becomes such a, 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 an obvious thing, we have to understand our weakness is not our enemy. That has been bred into us in a thousand different ways. We hide our weakness. We hide our failure. We hide the places where we are most vulnerable and where we have the most shame. But according to what, what happens here and the way that this works, if, if, if Gideon had not been put into that place of weakness, he never would have known the winning strategy. He never would have seen it. He never could have been in that place. Weakness is not our enemy. Our pride is. It's in the humility of the 300 men that Gideon was finally able to clearly see what was happening. For the first time, he could see how to win the war. So it is with us. It's not until we fully understand, embrace, see our weakness, our sin, our complete dependence upon God, not until then can we truly see our path forward. So long as we feel like we can do it ourselves, we've got this, we can handle it, we have something in our arsenal, we have something in our scheming, we have something in, 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 our, in our back pocket that will rescue us, so long as we feel like we got something that can do it, we'll never see the path forward the way that God has designed it for us. Our weakness is designed to open our eyes to the only way we can truly see and know God. So Gideon and his army sneak into the camp, and then using this, this surprise attack during the change of a guard, they blow their trumpets, they wave their torches, and, and, and then basically what happens is the Midianites come out of their tents, they see some people coming out at them, but it's dark, they can't really see, and they, they basically fight each other, and they just slaughter each other. They kill, they kill each other in the camp, panicked, in the, in the darkness, already nervous and on edge. They attack each other. The 300 men just kind of stand around on the outside like, wow, look at those guys. And they're just killing each other. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what, what happens. A few of them get away. The 300 men chase them down, take them in, take in some of their leaders. And we'll talk a little bit more about what happens at that point next week. But, but that's the gist of the story. 
God takes an army of 32,000, whittles it down to a ridiculous 300 men that have no chance of winning, and they win. So what do we make of this story? How Gideon found his courage, whittled down his army, and then defeated a massive army. The lesson of this story is honestly at the beginning of chapter 7. The very beginning. Judges chapter 7, verse 2. I'll read it again. We might have went past it and not even seen it or not even recognized it when we read it. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Lest Israel boast over me. The whole lesson in in, in the whittling down of Gideon's army is that God wants to make it clear that Gideon nor the army of, 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 of uh, the Israelites can take credit for the victory. He wants to make it clear that this is not done by the strength of the Israelite army. This is done because God has chosen to deliver the Midianites over to Gideon. The lesson is that our strength is never found in the places where we think it is. Never. And not only that, wherever we do find our strength, God isn't really all that interested in that place. Because if you're strong, if you can do it, if you're the one that can do it, what do you need God for in the first place? And frankly, that attitude, that, that, that kind of like mental positioning is, is what the vast majority, the vast majority of those around us in, the, in this country, in this state, those that you know, most people that you know, that is their positioning. I'll figure it out. I got to do this. I'll work for my strength and I'll make it happen. If you're strong and you can do it, what do you need God for in the first place? God's interested in showing up in our weakness. You see, independence is about your glory. Dependence is about his. So I'll go back to the question that I started with. Is independence a good thing? As a country, I would say you bet. As a collective ideal that pulls the most out of people, the results of independence, the, 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 the kind of results that have come back in, they are strong. It is good for what it does for the people of a country. When you take the idea of independence, inject that into the veins of an individualistic society, and then champion that rea- the, this reality that all anyone needs uh, for, is for government to get off their backs, and they will be able to pursue happiness with all their might. That can make for a very healthy national psyche collectively. But when we make that our spiritual pursuit and outlook, we are in big, big trouble. You see, biblically speaking, independence may be a good idea for a, for a nation, but it is a path toward destruction for an individual, at least in its purest form. The idea that we can do it ourselves, and as any two-year-old will tell you and will quickly learn, will often lead to frustration and failure. Yet this is our pursuit, and this is what we are celebrated for pursuing. In fact, since the earliest days of mankind in the garden, it was independence that Satan used to lure Adam and Eve to eat from the tree. You'll be like God. You won't need him anymore. 
You'll be like God. You won't need him anymore. It is the essence of our sin. It is the essence of idolatry. We carefully craft our lives to be free from depending on others and from depending on God. Some of that is maturity and responsibility. You want to be able to accomplish things and get things done. But the essence of sin is crafting a life so we can be free from God. God has designed us to need one another and to need him. He has designed us to be fully dependent. We simply cannot escape the burden of our sin and the depth of our failure on our own. For many, that's the entire drive for independence, escaping failure and atoning for sin. We call it the pursuit of happiness. In truth, it's the pursuit of a contented soul and a quiet spirit. And oftentimes, our pursuit of independence is rooted in convincing ourselves that we don't need God in the first place. It's the heart of sin and idolatry. You see, we like a God that works in transactions. We like a God that we can kind of set this up. We do this, he does that. We, we do what he asks, he does what we ask. But God likes for transactions to be unequal. We give nothing, he gives everything. Now that doesn't sound like a, a good deal for God. He, he gives everything, we give nothing. That doesn't sound like a good deal for God. But here's the thing, he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything, so there's no transaction we can come to him and say, God, what is the price for, for, for a peaceful soul? I'll pay that price. God says you can't afford it, and I don't need anything that you've got to offer. And, and, and we come and we say, God, what is it that I need to give you in order to, 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 to get this to pay off for me, for, for it to be worth it? And he says it doesn't work that way. What he says is, if, if, if you will come to me and you will lay down that, that, that spirit of, I can do it, let me pay for it. Instead, you come and you say, I, I have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. God says, that is the kind of spirit that I will respond to. He doesn't need anything from us, yet we need everything from him. We are fully dependent. Instead of celebrating our independence, as our country rightfully does, as Christians, we mark our lives. In fact, we stake our eternities, not on our independence, but on our dependence. We celebrate our dependence day. It is good and right for us to celebrate this. It is the essence of the Christian faith. The essence of the Christian faith is not, is, is, is not if you do well enough, perform well enough, dance well enough, make, make things happen well enough, go to church enough, do enough. It's not if you do these things, then God will say, all right, you're on my team. The essence of the Christian faith is saying, I have nothing to bring. I simply trust God that you are who you say you are. And that you will take my weaknesses, my failure, my sin, and you will cover it with the life of Jesus. 
Our declaration is that we are not partially but wholly dependent upon Christ in our deepest weakness and our worst sins. We must have him. Give me Jesus or I cannot live. Not independence or liberty, but Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my, that, that God said to him, as he, as he prayed to say, remove this weakness from me, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's Paul's dependence day. He says, if this is what it takes for God to be glorified, then I will celebrate the, the, the very thing that I, that I want removed the most. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. This is what it looks like whenever we are resurrected in the name of Christ. What is sown is uh, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. This is the way God works. Weakness is not our enemy. Weakness is the way that God con convinces us how desperately we need him. And the work of the Christian life is seeing all the ways in which we are weaker than we thought. Even where we feel like we are strong, how totally inadequate that is to save us. This is what it means for us to follow Christ. Peter does a good job of summing this up. We talked about this in 1 Peter. He, he does a good job of summarizing what freedom really looks like when we are in Christ. He says, live as people who are free. That is a great one. Stop right there, put a period on it. But he doesn't. He keeps on going. He says, not using your, sin as a free, or your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Our freedom is not for our independence, but it frees us to serve and to care for others. We are, we are set free, not for selfish pursuits, but for giving and caring for others. What we celebrate is indeed our dependence upon God. That is what we come here to sing about. That is what we come here to, 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 to pray about, to study about, is all the ways in which we need God and how our sin has put us in that place. That's what God has designed us for. And the church is designed to be a place where we corporately confess that together, and then we look to one another and say, I need you to help me with this. Help me see where I'm weaker than I think I am. And then help me, help me by pointing me to Jesus so that I can see him more clearly. Gideon's story is a story of, of moving from, from doubt and fear to confidence from having a strength turned into a weakness, but constantly possessing the faith to move forward. Our challenge this morning is to realize that our strength is not as strong as we think it is. And our weakness is, is, is far deeper than we think it is because it's not just a matter of weakness. It's a matter of sin. And so we trust Jesus for that. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning I thank you for the story of Gideon, for this story that seems so long ago but is so relevant to us. 
as we love to celebrate our independence, as we love to celebrate our personal strengths, as we love to be able to stand up and say, look at me, look at who I am, look at what I am. The story of Gideon reminds us that at the, the heart of the gospel is that we are indeed nothing. But instead, our lives should be a matter of pointing constantly to you, saying, look at what God has done, and look at who he is. Help us to be faithful to that task. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would stand with us as we worship.